Welcome. This is Save the Nation on ADH TV. And uh, I'm David Flint. And my guest today is a very special guest. I've read him for years, watched him on television for years. And this is the first time that uh, I've actually had the opportunity of interviewing Dr. Alan Moran, who is a magnificent economist, an expert in the field of energy. He was with the deregulation unit of uh, the Institute for Public Affairs, and he's now with a world, uh, very well-known think tank, the Heartland Institute. He is one of the nation's best-known commentators on energy. And if I may begin, firstly, by welcoming you, Alan, and asking you about the safeguard mechanism, which is flooding the newspapers at the moment and the media. What is that all about? Yeah, well, thank you for the intro, uh, David. Um, it's really about an additional tax placed on, on, uh, on business, an additional carbon tax. Uh, we started this uh, process about 20 years ago when we decided, or the Howard government was pressured into accepting a small uh, mandatory requirement of uh, renewable energy, which means wind and solar, be in incorporated in all our electricity bills. Now, of course, this sort of energy is always very expensive, and even though we have a whole lot of uh, agencies, including CSIRO in, in Australia, telling us that it's uh, the cheapest form of energy, it could never possibly be introduced unless it has a subsidy. Uh, and, uh, and that's been so from the day one and, and remains so today, <clears throat> even though uh, various parties say renewable energy is very cheap, uh, it, 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 nowhere in the world has any renewable energy be in, been introduced without a subsidy. And usually the subsidy is somewhat hidden, as it is in, in Australia, where uh, you and I don't know we're paying it, but we are paying it because our retailer is required to incorporate increasing amounts of that. So we have that, that, that uh, uh, subsidy introduced by the Howard government uh, in 2002 uh, and gradually jacked up. It was introduced at a, at a very small level and it's gradually been jacked up to, become, to be required at, at about 25%. Uh, of our energy resources, our energy uses, electricity uses. So one way or another, it was kind of running out of steam. Uh, the Abbott government tried to actually uh, withdraw it uh, uh, totally, but failed to do so. Of course, Turnbull uh, wanted to uh, amplify it, uh, and, and the, the Morrison government did very little either way. Uh, now Labour has come in, but when the Morrison government did put a put a, a, a magic charge in there. They, they called it uh, the, 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 uh, a kind of an offset machinery, um, but it was all going to be voluntary. Uh, but now that mechanism uh, has become mandatory or will become mandatory later this week. Uh, and what it does is require uh, the top 215 firms to, inc to reduce their level of carbon dioxide emissions by another 30% over the next uh, five, six years. Um, uh, and that's on top of the reductions that have taken place. 
the the way they can do this is either by you know reducing the amount of carbon dioxide emissions, capturing the carbon dioxide and storing it somewhere, or changing the, their energy mix, uh, or going out of business or transferring their business overseas. All of these measures involve a cost, and the latest cost, if we if we did it in terms of uh, you could you could just buy. Uh, there will be mechanisms where you can buy somebody else's emission reductions, uh, and you know that would cost about three hundred fifty million dollars in terms of the the, the the cost on major companies. Uh, so you know we will see a mixture of uh, higher cost on on these companies and uh, reduced output, uh, all of which mainly these companies are in the um, on, on in the international. Uh, tradable sector. So, you know, we'll see them reduced in terms of uh, their ability to produce and gain incomes in Australia. And all of this, of course, is pursuant uh, to the long-standing requirement or long-standing goals of reducing our emissions of CO2 on the basis that uh, these emissions of CO2 are creating uh, an increased warming effect for the globe as a whole. Uh, of course, Australia's uh, part portion of that is in infinitesimally small, uh, but that increased warming effect um, is uh, is uh, sort of is basically promoted by international bodies and by uh, left wingish or greenish uh, areas of the of, of politics generally, um, and uh, there has indeed been a warming, of course, uh, and but that warming. Uh, seems to have stopped uh, since about 2012. There's been no warming, uh, even though carbon dioxide emissions generally are increasing quite rapidly. It all started by looking at the developed world, um, uh, the US, EU, uh, and, and Japan, and major countries like that. But those countries now only pro provide or entail about 30 or 35 percent of global emissions, the most are now from the developing world, China in particular, which is more than half, India, Indonesia, etc. And these countries uh, aren't, don't have the same disciplines, they don't have any disciplines really in terms of their reduction in, in emission levels. So they will be, be increasing, to, uh, increasing their emissions of carbon dioxide. In other words, burning coal, burning gasoline, burning uh, uh, gas itself. Uh, which is the cheapest form of energy. So they're, they're taking advantage of that. Meanwhile, the Western world, and Australia is very much in the forefront of this, uh, is reducing our use of this sort of energy, which is far and away the cheapest way to, to uh, produce things. And of course, energy is not only something that heats our houses and uh, is important in that respect, but it's a, a, the most vital ingredient of, of industrial output. We're told, as I understand it, we're told we must believe two things. We must firstly believe in the theory of man-made global warming. That is something that you've got to accept like a religion. Although Ian Plymer, who, who is a, the, the nation's most celebrated geologist, says it's completely untrue. And he argues, for example, that uh, there have been, I think, six uh, six ice ages and at the beginning of every ice age there's been more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than there is now and yet and yet the the world went uh, into a freezing mode and we had an enormous amount of ice in the world so that's the first thing we must believe we have no alternative 
we must believe that. But secondly, we're told that the Paris solution must be accepted, that uh, there's only one way, if this, if this theory is true and people do challenge it, uh, that we must accept the Paris solution. We must go for net zero emissions, which you rightly point out, that only seems to be a number of countries that give uh, credence to that. And Australia seems to be passionate, at least the politicians of Australia seem to be passionate in applying that to us. Do you think that they may be making a mistake? I think they certainly are. I think, uh, I mean, Ian Plymer is quite right. With the, the temperature of the world has oscillated quite severely over the billions of years or whatever. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, most scientists say there would be an increase in temperature levels from human industrialization. There's been some effect. Most uh, those scientists who are who I would regard and most people regard as, as almost peerless in terms of their uh, acumen and their ability to understand the physics of this, people like uh, Richard Linson and, and Happer uh, and various others, um, say that that increase is about one or one point two degrees Celsius, uh, most of which has already occurred. Um, of course, and, and, and as Ian Plyman notes, that that sort of level of increase is, is massively over, overridden by the general noise of climate change, which occurs for a whole lot of reasons. And I guess mankind has lost its humility in terms of, uh, of recognizing these natural forces and, thinks that, and, and, and tends to think that we are the dominant force uh, of, of the universe, I guess. So, you know, that, that's true. <clears throat> the, the, the aspect of the Paris Agreement uh, is that saying that is saying basically there is only one way this can happen, and that is if the whole world uh, moves in, in lockstep. If you have countries which say, no, no, we're not going to do that, uh, we're not going to reduce our emissions, we're not going to stop burning coal, we're not going to stop burning oil and, and reducing petrol usage. Uh, they, those countries will, will have a commercial advantage and gradually industry will, will migrate to them uh, and they will, that, and of course then any effects would be negated. And that's, I guess, quite true. Uh, but the, 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 the issue is that uh, the, the major powers weren't sufficiently strong uh, in able to, to, to require uh, China, India and elsewhere uh, to, to march in lockstep. Uh, to that policy, and so you know, they, 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 those have got a free pass, or at least free pass for, for you know, the the foreseeable future. Uh, the issue is, if this is a really serious problem for the world, then you know, they, they, it has to be, uh, you know, ameliorated or or combated by a global solution. Uh, the other, the other question is, is this a really big? issue for the world because essentially the the amount of heat of warming that has taken place nobody nobody feels it's a serious amount of warming that's taken place over the last 80 years and it, and as i said before uh, it seems to have stopped so the last uh, dozen years uh, you know so we are involving ourselves in a very high cost to combat a, a problem which does not appear to be very serious and it's a high cost in particular for those countries in the West, the developed countries, who are voluntarily 
uh, by their politics shedding their most competitive industries and uh, permitting or even encouraging those industries to migrate to other countries. Adam Burnt of the Greens has been pressing the government to stop all new coal mining and all new gas exploration and exploitation in Australia. And he seems to be quite delighted with the safeguard mechanism. Does he, does he know something that uh, we don't know? Will the impact of the safeguard mechanism be such that it will stop a lot of new development? Well, it may. Uh, the, the, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very complex mechanism. I mean, some of the thing, some of the uh, uh, projects which Adam Bant's been targeting probably won't be affected, but the safeguard mechanism will increase costs if it's implemented in the way they say it will be implemented. It will increase costs and thereby prejudice the production uh, of, of these uh, uh, energy uh, assets within Australia. And I noticed actually Glencore this morning is basically saying that Australia is now no longer uh, uh, an equivalent to Canada in terms of its sovereign risk for these sorts of reasons and others. Um, will it have any effect on the world? Absolutely no effect whatsoever. Absolutely no effect. Australia has got no monopoly in coal. We've got great resources in coal. We've got good resources in gas. We may even have some resources in petroleum if we can find them. Um, it will have no effect whatsoever on the rest of the world, except maybe it will slightly increase the cost, the aggregate cost of coal or and, and, and gas and oil uh, worldwide because a major player but by no means a monopolist in Australia uh, is somewhat curtailing the amount uh, which is be, will be permitted in the future. Uh, whether this will be un unwound or not, I don't know. I mean, we talked a bit about the, uh, the Paris Agreement, and of course that's kind of prevailing after a fashion now, but one of the uh, features of the Paris Agreement is that uh, had Trump been in power, and indeed Trump reneged, he, he withdrew uh, the US from the Paris Agreement, that would have led to the collapse of that Paris Agreement and we would not have seen the kind of strictures we see now in terms of uh, limitations of coal and gas and oil that uh, that are being implemented with the EU and the, uh, and the US in tandem. It, it, the Paris Agreement would have collapsed uh, and we would have found much, we would have found gradually these, um, these uh, uh, increased costs in positions by politics being removed uh, uh, worldwide. One of the uh, one of your comments in a piece in Spectator in relation to the safety mechanism was that it was an antipodean form of fascism. And that reminded me very much of the fact that at the time of Federation, Australia and Argentina were very rich countries. They were very rich compared with the rest of the world, particularly Australia, but certainly Argentina too. And the only, the only explanation I can conceive as to why Argentina has become so poor over that period of time since Federation, it hasn't been involved in any world wars like Australia has, but it's become really a, a mess economically. And I can only put it down to the number of fascist governments that they've had in Argentina, which have done serious damage to the Argentinian economy. 
Emma, I'm no economist, although I do happen to have an economics degree, but I'm certainly not anybody of a background as you have. Is there some fair analogy in that? Is, was fascism the cause of Argentina's decline? Will this form of fascism, Antipodean form of fascism, will this really lead to a significant economic decline of this country? Well, the Argentinian issue, uh, basically, you know, from about early in the in the in the 20th century, uh, started to have a system whereby government was very much involved in in what was produced and who produced it and how it was produced, etc. Uh, so we and they had a, a, very, a very strong tariff uh, level to keep out imports, and Australia had some of that too. But you know that that kind of mix of politics and and commercialism really means that politics takes the whip hand. And uh, whenever that happens, uh, you're really going to find uh, poorly performing firms. And you know, the, 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 the later example of that was, was communism, of course, where the Russian economy uh, fell further and further behind the, the freer market economies of the West. Certainly in terms of, uh, of Argentinian, Argentinian history is, is a very telling point. I mean, it was, you know, with the US and, and Australia, the three, three highest per capita uh, income economies at the beginning of the 20th century and is now, you know, one of the poorer countries in the world. Uh, but, and and um, what, the, uh, what the new mechanisms do the safeguard mechanism, it, it, it puts the minister or politics in a very strong position, a much stronger position in terms of giving approvals to firms. And when the politics is in that strong position, it will, it will insist upon other things to get those approvals. Part of it will be, you know, stop criticizing as, as, as politicians, otherwise you won't get your approval. Uh, part of it will be, you know, why don't we employ these people? Why don't you locate to this particular area? Why don't you do things that aren't commercial? So we will see, and we are seeing, we've seen it already with, with, with various uh, decisions by the present government, uh, in, including in, in coal mining areas, which, uh, pre preventing uh, new coal mines. We will see more and more of this uh, if, if uh, as this safeguard mechanism starts to bite, uh, and uh, you know, instead of uh, firms having to look at the, their markets and look at what's available in Australia and how, how they're going to extract these goods and services uh, and get them into into uh, the hands of their consumers, they will be very much more preoccupied in terms of how do I placate my political masters in this as well. So that is a, a recipe for uh, uh, reducing our, our general living standards and, and, and that will happen clearly if this this system prevails. I would have thought when you look at uh, per capita GDPs, we should be aiming for being a country like Norway or Singapore. They seem to be doing very well. Here we have this enormous mineral and agricultural wealth and a relatively small population. Shouldn't we be doing as good as countries like that? Oh, we should be doing a lot better. We, I mean, this is a fabulously rich country, and and one one of the uh, facets of the interventionism we've seen under both political parties really is that in spite of this, uh, our, our wealth is quite considerable. I mean, there's no question about it. Australia should be 
far and away the richest country in the world, and we're not. There are many countries richer than us. Uh, we, we, and we have foregone that because we've accepted increasing amounts of political intervention, which have prevented uh, the, the, uh, the most remunerative uses of our labor and capital uh, and, uh, and have added costs to them. Uh, so yeah, we 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 have uh, you know we we ought to have uh, the cheapest power in the world, the cheapest electricity in the world. Far and away, we've got massive amount of coal. It's in, in very conveniently located. It's very easy to extract compared to anywhere else in the world, uh, and yet we are basically are taxing this out of business and, and seeking to eradicate it fully by by 2030, according to the Labour Party. Uh, you know. Uh, Basically, I, I, I can't think of any country in world history which has decided to forcibly forego uh, wealth in the way that we are doing in Australia. Well, it's extraordinary. Uh, on the news this morning, the radio news this morning, they said that uh, the source of electricity, I think they were saying in New South Wales, is 87% was coal. And then they point out to the other areas and... Uh, the amount coming from wind and solar was relatively small, although this massive investment has been going into it for this period. Mm -hmm. I, find it, I find it rather strange, curious, that the forms of renewable or non-carbon dioxide emitting energy that the politicians choose, the only two that they seem to approve are essentially wind and solar. They don't like hydro, they, they detest nuclear. And it seems to me, is it just a coincidence that, uh, that uh, the, the two that they prefer, that is wind and solar, are the two which are enriching the communist Chinese? I find that an interesting fact. Is there something in that or am I reading too much into that, do you think? I don't know that there's anything. I, no, I, I think you might be reading too much into it, although there certainly are uh, pressures um, for wind and solar. Uh, but I see those pressures as more internal, more of the sort of uh, subsidy seekers uh, within Australia. Um, people like Homes Accord, for example, who uh, basically are building these or financing these projects and, and they, need, they need subsidies in order to make them viable. Um, rather than the Chinese, the Chinese are uh, just uh, as, a, as a sort of centre of world manufacturing are taking advantage of this very much so. Um, but I don't know that, that I'd see them as the major uh, uh, as the major enforcers of us moving out of coal. That they do have an advantage. They do have a, 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 a an incentive to do so uh, because they can then sell us windmills uh, rather than coal mining equipment. But uh, the, the most of the, I, I see these as most, mostly internally driven by people who hate capitalism uh, and and, uh, and hate coal. Have come to hate coal. I mean, it is uh, odd that they that those people who claim to be wanting to reduce emissions don't want to reduce those emissions through nuclear uh, and don't want to reduce them through hydro. Uh, in the case of hydro, there is limited, but some some additional resources in Australia. Nuclear, of course, is is, is a very fine uh, way of, of of generating power. It's it's much more expensive for Australia, but not for other countries to do it that way. Uh, but um, 
you know, they, they oppose that, which, which really means to, to say, say to me that they kind of don't like, don't like the sort of growth that we've seen uh, in, in, world, in the world as a result of market forces and that they kind of want a different sort of growth or maybe no growth at all. Has there, or is it possible that there could be a more efficient economic system than free market capitalism? Well, I mean, there always is theoretically. One can always look at the waste uh, that ha happens with com competition. But whenever we've seen uh, these sorts of uh, alternative systems put into place, have been disastrous, not only disastrous in terms of the economy, but also uh, in terms of the, the means by which they have to enforce their will, which has led to you know mass, mass deaths and concentration camps, etc. Uh, so uh, I, I can't see a different way in which, uh, we, which we can harness the forces of mankind and nature to, uh, to increase our living standards than the free markets. Basically, free markets um, essentially have to, have to perform in ways which the consumer wants. And, and the consumer wants you know, the best quality at the, at the, the lowest price. And they are all the time searching for ways in which this can be brought about rather than having some central direction you know it's only uh, we, we mentioned China essentially China uh, shit went once it shifted away from uh, a centrally planned economy it was never quite as centrally planned as the as the Soviet Union uh, once it started moving away from that in in the post Mao era uh, we saw you know first of all companies which had largely a large amount of government ownership still some some still have uh, but operating as free market with, with shareholders having an implement major say and seeking to maximize profits and 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 that that has led to this massive uh, increase in in chinese gdp which we've seen in the last 30 years um it, it's not always helped by having large government ownership and there's certainly a, some some government intervention in terms of, of, of firms policies but by and large uh, it's a, an authoritarian government with a free market state and uh, that free market or state state uh, industry and that, that free market has paid rich dividends. Difficult to see any other means in which this could come about. I suppose the, uh, the Chinese did have the example of Hong Kong where the rule of law right. prevailed but the administration was provided by by the representative of another democratic government, not by the people of Hong Kong. But it seemed to work very well, did it not? Oh, absolutely. Indeed, the Chinese experiment started with Shenzhen, uh, just outside Hong Kong, where they, 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 they made a, you know, a carved out, made an enclave, if you like, where capitalism could, could prevail. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, basically Hong Kong, um, you know, was, was was created from Chinese refugees who were uh, braved considerable conditions to, to actually get to, to Hong Kong in, in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, it, it's an interesting case because Hong Kong, is, as, as you rightly say, um, was really founded on the rule of law, property law, absolutely. Property. But uh, a foreign government ruled it. And it ruled it in, in a very benign way, a very unusual way. Uh, essentially, uh, they, they just passed laws which, which did very little. There was hardly any social security, hardly any 
any uh, 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 governmental in, inter intervention. Uh, simply they passed laws and, and they didn't give much money away, therefore the very low taxation. Mm. Uh, they had no tariffs and therefore they could buy the cheapest goods in the world, and they could export the cheapest goods in the world, and the economy came became, I, I guess, just about the richest economy in the world from being, you know, a poverty-stricken island uh, in, in the 1930s. They had some services there, didn't they? They did provide basic government services. There were police, there, there were schools, uh, there were yep. roads, and uh, there were, I remember there, were, there was public transport. I think it was public transport. I don't think it was privately owned, except the ferries may have been privately owned, but it, it seemed to have the, the essence of the sort of government that uh, people would remember if they could remember back to the 19th century or the early 20th century in Western countries. Exactly so. I mean, and that, that, I mean, it was based on, uh, you know, 19th century English liberalism, if you like, and uh, it was that, you know, where the government uh, is a very important role, policing, uh, making sure contracts are in there, uh, intervention in education, certainly that was an important aspect in Hong Kong, not sure whether, well, not sure whether the uh, uh, transport system was privatized or not, but certainly building roads and, and other infrastructure. Uh, you know, they did the sorts of things that you and I wish governments did right now and, and uh, basically filled in a few gaps here and there. Um, government si the size of governments as a, as a share of GDP in Hong Kong was like about 15% um, compared to 50% or something we, we have here and in most Western countries. And, you know, that's a, a massive... Uh, uh, gap that which 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 can uh, allow private sector uh, fund, uh, activities to prevail within and um, enrich themselves as, as Hong Kong showed but unfortunately so few people look at that example nowadays and say well isn't this the way to go uh, that wasn't the case uh, in in the 1970s you know when we talked about the Asian Tigers which was Hong Kong and Singapore and Taiwan uh, and South Korea all of which followed some sort of policies rather like Hong Kong's. In other words, they had governments which, which may have been authoritarian in some respects, but which by, by and large stayed out of uh, uh, business and allowed business to prevail. And those countries, uh, all four, four countries were very poor and became very rich. We saw a bit of the same in, uh, in Latin America too, where you know, Allende came into, uh, uh, the, the, the governments came into power there, the military dictatorship came in, uh, but basically didn't run like other military dictatorships. It very much ran uh, uh, making sure it was, it was gonna, not going to be overthrown, but allowed business to prevail. And, and Chile became the star of the economy in, in Latin America, growing at 7 or 8% a year for many years, and, and others... Latin American countries for a while followed that pattern and disengaged somewhat. But um, unfortunately, the forces of politics uh, came back into, yes. into the fore. That was under the Pinochet government, wasn't it? Yes. That Chile yes. chose that path. And uh, uh, Allende was overthrown, wasn't he, uh, by a, by a right-wing government, a military government. But uh, you have the problems in all of those countries where once they took power, they then abused that power, which one mm. cannot say of Hong Kong. Hong Kong seemed to almost have an angelic 
government. I remember in the early days after the takeover, when uh, there were still demonstrations because they were still paying obeisance to the idea of there being two systems, one country with mm -hmm. two systems. They were still paying some respect to that and there were demonstrations. And I remember the enormous crowds of demonstrators, many of whom were carrying the colonial flag, which is extraordinary. Yeah. There you had people wanting, they, would, they really wanted to return to colonial status rather than being part of... Uh, part of the People's Republic, which uh, I, yeah. I think was fascinating that we did have there an example of an extraordinarily wonderful government which delivered, really delivered, but it also required that the people be independent, that they not become welfare dependent, which of course is mm -hmm. one of the problems, is it not, of modern, modern government, that uh, governments tend to want to train people into becoming dependent on government which then weakens their resilience and their, their role in a capitalist economy. Yeah, quite so. And, uh, and in fact, there's always some heart-tugging stories of, uh, of people who've fallen between the cracks and, and, and done badly. And those uh, stories uh, generate uh, a lot of potential for, for welfare and the welfare itself, uh, in the end, undermines self-reliance uh, and in fact, there was no welfare. I don't think there was any unemployment benefit yes. even in, in, in Hong Kong. Uh, and yet, here was a nation which uh, grew massively. Um, uh, there, was, there was hardly any poverty in the end. And, uh, and it was uh, something which we ought to be looking at in terms of, of uh, as a, a blueprint for the future. But so, people, so few people do it. I mean, essentially, we, we've got to a situation where politics has become dominant in terms of, of our, our, our general thinking. And the politics basically uh, overawes the, the economics and uh, the, the freedom which um, that economics uh, has proven to generate in, uh, and uh, the wealth it's generated uh, is for, foregone. Um, we, we seem to be asking a lot more of government than government can can efficiently provide and uh, if only we went back to that system of looking at hong kong where with minimal government and saying well you know really that's that's the key to prosperity yet unfortunately i don't see too many voices saying that sort of thing uh, certainly not in australia well uh, we've just been through an election in new south wales and the major contenders both the coalition, the Liberal National Coalition and Labour, were engaged in a bidding war. They were bidding, they were offering people all sorts of vouchers and advantages. They were offering people their own money, taxation, <laughs> taxation derived money for various things that they would offer. They would reduce tolls on the road by subsidies, for example. There would be all sorts of things which would come from the government. And that was essentially the debate. The only or the major proponent, which is the One Nation leader, that is Mark Latham, he was arguing that we had to do something about the standards of education and we had to do something about energy. He was arguing that we had, we had foolishly replaced one of the cheapest and most reliable electricity grids in the world and we were making it one of the most expensive and unreliable. He wanted that changed. Mm -hmm. And his other reference was in relation to education, 
because the educational standards in Australia are falling, slipping dramatically. And he said that he would attend to that, that he would uh, return education to what it once was. Those were real issues. And, but of course, he didn't, he wasn't a, the major party and the two contenders really offered very similar bribes. They were really bribes to the people. That, that was what yeah. was being offered and all, as to also whether they could do this better than the other side. And that, that was rather a tragedy that uh, we didn't really debate the really big issues. And one of the big issues in this state and I think the whole country is our energy system, which is precisely your field. Exactly. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, you know, you mentioned that the election, you know, you could say maybe 10 percent of people voted for Mark Latham or similar sorts of mm. policies. The other 90 percent of people voted for um, government giving them things without realizing, recognizing or without taking into consideration the fact that government hasn't got anything to give. It, it only take from some people and give to others. And, you know, and that, that, that ascendancy of politics um, is really a blight on, on Western nations generally because, they, you know, the, the political parties aren't stupid. I mean, they, they're doing massive research, political research all the time to what voters want and what they're going to, uh, what, what they can persuade them to have. And they get this blend of policies together and they offer them these, these goodies uh, as though the goodies are coming from nowhere. I guess people realize that they aren't coming from nowhere in the end, but they figure that they are going to benefit by having this uh, politics override the market uh, mechanism uh, and therefore will vote for politics. And this is a situation of, of how do we how do we actually get back to restraining the role of politics in in nations, uh, restraining it to the basic things about, you know, whether we go to war or whether we uh, what religion we have or, you know, things that, that were the, the role of politics a uh, uh, hundred years ago uh, and no longer are. I mean, basically, those things have been now su supplanted by other blandishments which governments can offer uh, and take from other people in, in order to swing votes in their direction. Uh, it, it, it's a great pity that we can't seem to find a way into that Hong Kong sort of uh, political uh, you know, formulation, uh, because that is the way to gain wealth that we all really want. And to a great extent, this conclusion, that is the politicians acting <clears throat> as offering bribes to the to the population, uh, where the, the politicians are very much assisted by a media which is there to entertain and to distract in many ways, uh, mm. particularly the more popular media, and uh, an education system which seems to have moved away from uh, teaching, teaching facts and trying to make uh, students uh, have the skills necessary in society and uh, becoming more systems for propaganda, for teaching, for teaching beliefs rather than trying to teach skills. And I, I think to many, to, in many ways, the population should not be blamed because to a great extent, they're subjected to these two forces. 
uh, certainly uh, education was very different when I went to school, and that's not just an old man talking. I know from my own experience in just an ordinary primary school, in an ordinary class, that the boys in that class were, I would say, 100%. They, 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 they were able to read and write, and they were able to apply basic mathematics because we had to do that. We had to do that. We had to read aloud. We had to be able to speak. We had to be able to do mathematical, mathematical calculations publicly. So all of that was exposed in a class, quite a large class, by a teacher who was in control. And it was a very effective way of making us literate and numerate and reasonably well informed. But that seems to, I gather, in the schools of today, that seems to have disappeared as to an extent it has disappeared in the media. I think that's quite so. It doesn't seem to have disappeared in some schools, uh, that is in the Chinese schools, Indian schools to some degree, Japanese schools. Uh, and. and you know, the, the test of this is when we start examining uh, literacy and mathematical capabilities of children, and we see in spite of the fact that we pour massive amount more uh, resources into education in Australia, we're slipping way behind in terms of these crucial features. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, the, the basically the education system is, is diverting away from teaching things, about teaching people about the skills that they need to do to uh, to maintain themselves in, in real life in terms of literacy, numeracy, et cetera, and shifting to other other features which uh, undermine the abilities and uh, of people to, to um, survive and prosper. And indeed, basically uh, seek to actually extract that element of education, which is to, uh, the betterment element of education and, and, uh, and trying to level everybody to the same standard, which which means leveling down, and so we we've got a, a dreadful situation uh, in the educational priorities, which is um, superimposed upon by the other features that you you mentioned in terms of uh, we, we're teaching we have teachers who are attracted to the system and who teach things other than those three R's that uh, are vital elements, but but want to actually mould children into into being. Uh, something which they were not in, in earlier generations. If we could go uh, back... Media is, is another aspect. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure about the media. Uh, certainly the media is extremely left-wing uh, in Australia and most uh, other countries, but to, to, uh, I guess that's part of the fact that the people attracted to it uh, see themselves as a fourth estate and wishing to, to, to do more than just report what's happening, but to, to mould what's happening. And in doing so, they become kind of politicians. Uh, so it's, it's the, the people attracted to the media essentially are uh, interventionists, uh, want to override and, and correct the injustices that, that they see rather than report the news. Yes. There is, of course, one exception, and uh, you appear on his programme from time to time, and that's Alan Jones, Alan Jones is really uh, still the nation's leading broadcaster. And I would think that his programs have an enormous following. So uh, I know you do appear in Spectator and uh, in other specialized areas, but uh, Alan Jones is a generalist in the sense that he has a, 
a very broad audience and uh, it's very good that we have at least uh, a few people like Alan Jones who are speaking generally to the population so that uh, the sort of things that you're talking about, which you express simply uh, so that people understand them, you don't talk like a, an economist and you don't present us with a lot of uh, equations and mathematics which confuse us. And that's very important in a society to have that message coming through. Uh, one, of the, one of the matters that was raised in the election, I don't think it really had a great impact. It, it was that the Labour Party raised the question of privatisation and they raised that as a fear and they're going to put into the constitution a provision that uh, water cannot be privatised in New South Wales. Is, do you have any particular view on privatisation? Is, uh, is it inherently a bad thing or can it be good? Well, I, I, it will always likely to be good. I mean, privatisation basically means you take, or, or it's opposite, which is government control, is that you have public servants uh, appointed to actually run businesses and they have to run businesses and they are accountable to politicians in doing so. So you kind of have those businesses being run uh, as part of the political vote-getting uh, system. Uh, I, I was very heavily involved in the privatisation of electricity businesses in Victoria and elsewhere. I mean, we had, for example, uh, the generation businesses in Victoria employed 25,000 people, almost all men, of course. Uh, 25,000 people they employed. Once they were all privatised, uh, they employed less than 3,000 people. In other words, it's a, we had all these people, dead men, essentially de doing dead jobs. Uh, it was a t terrible waste. Not only that, but the actual uh, efficiency of the firms, what they call their, their, their ability to run in, in technical terms, uh, went up from something like 75% to over 90%. In other words, that they fit, not only did you have far uh, fewer people, but you, they were running them better. I mean, and this was the, the other electricity systems were the same. Uh, you can see whenever you have uh, government run institutions, they will be overstaffed, they will be inefficient. So you basically got to privatize whatever you can. There's some things you can't privatize. You can't privatize the army very easily, for example. Uh, uh, water, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, water is privatised in, in a great many countries and, uh, you know, it's an essential facility. In, in those kinds of uh, facilities where you have a, a natural monopoly, you would have something oversighting the, uh, the, 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 the business which is supplying, supplying it uh, in order to prevent overcharging. And that's what we have with, for example, our electricity uh, su supply lines, transmission lines, and, and so on. So you can, if you privatise things, you 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 actually incentivise uh, shareholders to reduce costs, which can only be good. Uh, uh, and I think that uh, it's, it's unfortunate that the pre New South Wales Premier, who, who who labels himself as somebody of the right, cut his teeth in opposing privatisation of the New South Wales electricity system. Uh, and uh, therefore really opposes uh, efficiency or did in that, in that particular case. Uh, you know, government, own, government ownership basically spells inefficiency. You, you, you can hardly, you can never mention or think of any firm which is 
government owned and controlled which has prevailed in against competition uh, there aren't any i suppose you had reservations when mr rudd decided that uh, he would uh form a public corporation for the internet to provide an internet service across Australia. I thought at the time, well, why not just leave this to the Telstra companies, the various companies, and people could pay for the service they wanted rather than the government deciding that they would give uh, an A-class service to everybody in the country, whether they wanted that or not. And didn't that go well? We, we spent, what, $80 billion? And we have a, a, a system now, a national broadband system, which is, is probably worth about $10 billion. I mean, that's a, that's a classic case of government intervening. It, it sees uh, the, way, the way of the future. It will pioneer the way of the future. It will form a company to do that, and it collapses ignominiously. And hardly anybody sort of says, oh, what, what a dreadful... What went wrong there? I mean, you, you mentioned, what well, you know, what went wrong? Why, why didn't we just leave it to the existing firms and allow them to fight it out, as they did, say, in the United States and, and, and elsewhere? But no, no, we, we had a, a unique Australian system uh, which has just spent, uh, thrown $60 billion down the drain over the years uh, and for a, a service which, which is probably inferior. Uh, in terms of the internet to, compared to best practice elsewhere. Weren't we guaranteed that this being off budget would be such a wonderful investment that it could be sold and sold at a great yeah. profit? And I think this year they, they wrote off eight, they wrote off 30 billion, but it, it hardly, it was hardly reported. It was just a minor no. report in the newspapers. Yeah. But that was an extraordinary amount of money to be written off. And you think it's about 60 billion, and it would probably be worth no more than 10 billion, if that now, because I don't te know what. Te technology has taken, is, is beating it, isn't it? You, the need for the cable yeah. is disappearing. I, I, know, yeah. I know where I live, where, the, where Sky comes over a cable, they come, they're about to close that down, and that won't right. be available yeah. anymore, and Sky is going on to... Uh, the internet and uh, it'll be yeah. it'll be received like everything else seems to be being received it's, now so we didn't it's need an that. object lesson in yeah it's an object lesson in why governments shouldn't do things like that a they're going to they're going to pad the workforce unfortunately and b they're going to look at some enticing technology throw all their all, all their money into that and it may or may not prevail and in this case it didn't prevail senator conroy if i remember rightly uh, had this idea and he managed to get an appointment to be with Kevin Rudd, the Prime Minister, on the Prime Ministerial aircraft. And he wrote these, uh, he drew them on the, on the, uh, the cards, the, the things that are, you, you, you put your beer and uh, wine on. He, mm -hmm. he drew Coasters, yeah. the, the scheme on that. And that apparently was the origin of this brilliant idea, which we are now yeah. paying for an extraordinary amount of money and a very foolish idea indeed, because it should have just been left well, to I, the companies, shouldn't it? The, the communications yeah, and, companies. And uh, Conroy really hasn't, hasn't paid any price for that. I mean, he, he wasted, I don't think any man in Australia has ever wasted $50 billion uh, uh, but he wasted $50 billion. He stole $50 billion from the Australian people and threw it away. Yes. And yet he appears on television as an expert on politics and things. Quite, quite extraordinary. 
uh, you know, that, uh, that that could have happened. Politicians don't pay much. There's, there's little liability for what they do. For example, the, uh, the closing off of the live cattle trade in, uh, in Australia cost an enormous amount of money. And the judge, the judge uh, found that the Commonwealth was guilty of uh, malfeasance in public office, I think it was called. And they, had to, they will pay or they're already paying a very large amount of money for that. But the politicians who took the decision pay nothing for that. They, they pay no responsibility. There is nothing. Should there be some responsibility on the part of politicians in relation to serious errors that they commit? It would be great to see it's happening. Uh, I mean, I, I, I just don't think it's, it's ever going to happen. I mean, it, the, the, the ultimate discipline is that you sort of publicize these and the politicians get thrown out of office, throw the bums out, as they say. But uh, so often that doesn't happen, that they, they morph themselves into a sort of different different line and uh, and prevail. I mean, you, you mentioned Kevin Rudd. I mean, he's now the ambassador to the United States. He's a man of considerable prestige. He, he wrecked the economy through his in, intensive interventions in a great many areas. I mean, he got elected on, you know, we've got to stop this waste wasteful expenditure of the Howard government, you know, which is fair enough. Um, but of course, he redoubled the wasteful expenditure and, uh, and, and, and got thrown out of office in the end. But nonetheless, uh, they don't seem to pay much of a price. Uh, certainly those on the left uh, no, don't. They certainly don't. Uh, one, of the, one of the things I used to think was that there wasn't that much difference between our Westminster system, as it applies in Australia and Britain and Canada, and the American system of having the single executive elected there for four years. I thought that in, in actual delivery of government, of good government, it didn't really make that much difference. But I've come to the conclusion because of the current presidency, that is Mr. Biden, who I think is, I think is an appalling president and compromised in many ways and making enormous mistakes and the policies are so bad compared with his predecessor. I don't think he would last long under the Westminster system. I think very quickly they would move him on. The cabinet would revolt and would not accept such a thing. And the parliament itself, there'd be, there might even be a vote of no confidence in the, in the parliament in relation to this. I think our system, the Westminster system, is more flexible in providing good government. Do, do you as a, an economist have any view on which system is better? Well, not really. I mean, I could think of, you know, I'm not sure the Westminster system would have thrown up a Trump, and I think Trump was great, or a Reagan, or... Threw, uh, threw up a Margaret you know, Thatcher. The, we threw it, did throw up a Margaret Thatcher, yeah. Um, Not often, you know, though. <laughs> no. And I think if you were going to sort of test that hypothesis of yours, you'd probably have to put them all together, all the all the people who've been in power and over the years, and then say you you could you could get a, a, a an, an ambiguous test or some, somewhat unambiguous test. The American system has got, I think, has got some sub superiorities over. Uh, the Westminster system, insofar as it's more diffuse, the power base. So, you know, Biden may well be the worst uh, president ever, almost certainly is the worst president ever. But his powers to do things are somewhat limited because 
um, he has to pass them through Congress, and it's not always easy. And there are the various, uh, of course, the states are much more powerful. So whereas um, we were talking about energy, uh, okay, the, we, here we, we can crucify, a central government can really crucify the energy industry, as it has. We've seen our energy bills doubled or whatever, uh, and, and uh, become amongst the highest in the world. Whereas U.S. presidency is following similar policies, and yet hasn't created so much destruction, uh, because the partly because it has is hampered in, in its ability to to act in this uh, uh, authoritarian way by Congress. Partly because the states are, of course, much more powerful as well. So I think the American system's got something going for it, which we haven't. Yes. I think you have a, a, a point there, except that uh, in relation to the bailouts, I suspect that the number of the bailouts by the president are probably unconstitutional. I think he probably needs constitutional support for some of them, but that will that will work out. People will take action mm -hmm. and uh, a solution will be found there. It's been a wonderful, a really wonderful uh, interview from my point of view. I think you've, uh, you've explained things so well. I do wish that your... Your, the sort of education, the, the advice you can give were better known. It's well known in, uh, in particular circles. The general public needs to know this. I suspect, and we might perhaps, uh, I might just ask you on this. My feeling is that uh, there will be a realization among people generally as to the problems if there is a general breakdown, for example, if we have some major economic breakdown, or there's a, or people aren't able to regularly recharge their phones because the electricity system is broken down, people will begin to realise that something is seriously wrong. Do you have so? Do you have a reserve view yourself along those lines? No, I, I mean I, I share your view that that's the case because we talked about Argentina, whereas Argentina just went through a slow. It didn't have a disaster. It just went to a slow design over 100 years and is continuing on that path. Whereas those countries which have had a disaster, the Soviet Union, for example, even China, and certainly Nazi Germany, uh, were able to reform. You know, they had a disaster, so they reformed and, and recharged. Uh, and I think that's probably the, the only way it will happen. And, and uh, if, in fact, it happens at all in Australia, and I hope it does, it, there will be a painful period uh, in which this, this great awakening does take place. We've seen it in the past. Uh, we saw with the excesses of the Whitlam government uh, created some difficulties, and we saw then the, uh, a better government uh, introduced again with the, the Rudd-Gillard government. Same sort of thing happens there. So, you know, but we haven't seen in Australia the sort of dramatic collapses that uh, really are required to actually bring about that reformulation of government along the Hong Kong lines that we, we've discussed. Alan, I must thank you so much for this interview. You've been very generous with your time and very wise in your formulations. Thank you so much. This is Save the Nation Thanks, David. on ADH-TV and uh, until next time. <laughs>